So we're working through uh, this new series, uh, the Gospel of Luke. So can I encourage you over these next, uh, this next week or so, why not um, read through the whole of the book of Luke? Uh, it's not actually that long, although in fairness, um, each of the chapters in Luke are pretty, they're pretty sizable. Uh, so when you look at the, the chapters, you, you probably straight away, you're thinking, we're working through all of this. Um, well, the reality is, I guess, that probably we could spend the next few years literally looking at all that Luke is, is looking to uh, share with us. So we're not going to do that. Uh, what we're going to do is take a chapter at a time, and we're hopefully going to draw out uh, the key element, the key kind of idea or theme uh, that Luke is, is sharing with us. So that's what we're looking to do over these next uh, months. It's an opportunity, really, for us to share the Gospel of Luke together. We're calling, calling the series Certain, uh, because that's what the Gospel of Luke is all about. Right at the very beginning of our reading, uh, this afternoon we read this, uh, in verse 3 to 4, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain for, sorry, you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that's the kind of opener that uh, Luke gives as he's writing this letter uh, to this man that he knows, this uh, man by the name of Theophilus. This is chapter 1 of what he writes. Chapter 2 of what he writes, oh, sorry, let me phrase that another way. This is book 1. Book two of what he writes is the book of Acts. So if we think about it in this way, if you want a kind of big idea of how this works, you can kind of think this is the Acts of Jesus while he was present, book one. This is the Acts of Jesus once he has ascended, book two. That's a kind of quick and easy way of thinking of this two-book idea of the gospel and the book of Acts, gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is conveying to us uh, events, and he's conveying them to Theophilus so that he might have a certainty of the things that he has been taught. That's something which I think in our world today, we all look for, don't we? There is a sense in which we are all looking for certainty in every aspect of life. Now, I know that there are, certainly there are, there are exciting elements of life for some, that the excitement kind of relies on uncertainty. That's one of the great things about being involved in some crazy sport or kind of mad activity. You know the idea of jumping out of a plane with strings tied to you and a bed sheet above you? That the idea of that is, I suppose, part of the excitement for some who are crazy enough to do it is the uncertainty of whether you're actually going to make it down safely. That is at least part of the excitement. It's the adrenaline rush that we think it's certain, but, but actually is it? So we jump out of a plane and we test our theory time and time again. That we means other people. I don't jump out of planes because that's a crazy thing to do. Having said that, 
we are also, in each of our lives, we are looking for certainty. We're looking to be sure in other aspects of life, way more serious. We want, we want to know about the security of our environment or our future, about the events of life, our employment, our careers, our financial stability, the relationships that we are in, all of those different things. Is our pension at the end of our lives going to give us enough to actually survive? Or are we in trouble come the day? For some of you, let me just say, for some of you here in the room, you're probably going to be retiring at about, I don't know, 78, 79, something like that. You know, there's an advantage right at this point in life to being that little bit older. Uh, But that's one of the questions in life, isn't it? What is the future about? Uh, And Luke hits on this because he's saying to Theophilus, I want you to be certain about something. I want you to be certain about what you have been taught. That's what this letter is all about. And what he does is he writes a compelling narrative about the life of Jesus. That's the three, think about that, it's a compelling narrative about the life of Jesus. This life that was lived 2,000 years ago. He wants to display something to Theophilus so that he can be sure of something. Now, before we go any further, knowing that something is true is not faith. Let me make that really clear. Knowing the truth about Jesus, agreeing with the truth about Jesus, is not faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Faith is about me committing my life to what I now know to be true. That's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And in a sense, I suppose Luke is writing this for Theophilus, saying, you've heard about all of these, uh, I, this idea, and we're going to come to this in a minute, this idea of why you should believe this. Now, let me give you the foundations of the reason why you should believe it so that you can be sure. In one sense, what we are reading, what we are entering into, is the age-old question. Can I be sure about the claims of Jesus of Nazareth? Can I be sure? Can I be certain? I guess one of the things that immediately we would want to do, whenever we're faced with that, is we'd want to look at the person who's writing. We'd want to have a look at the author, wouldn't we? Uh, There was a very interesting report in 2006. Um, 2006, 10 years ago, if you remember it, there was quite a lot of concern about the dangers of mobile phones. Uh, What were they doing to us? What was the, um, the, the issue of having this kind of box of radiation sat next to our brain all the time? Do you remember the the issues? 
Somebody conducted a report on what was written in, uh, in the various uh, scientific evaluations, and they found this, that those evaluations, those studies that had been funded by mobile phone manufacturers were least likely to say that mobile phones were dangerous. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't surprise you, should it? In actual fact, it's not a surprise because the mobile phone industry back in 2006 had a vested interest that it was really important to them that the studies that were conducted made, made, made us believe that mobile phones are not dangerous. Now, I don't know what the outcome is of mobile phones um, over the years, but one thing we do know is that the tobacco industry did exactly the same decades ago, writing about the safety of smoking. And now we know that it's dangerous. That's fascinating, isn't it? So straight away, we have this question mark. How, how can we be uh, secure in, in this narrative? Why, why should we believe this? I want to just touch on that, because that's really important as we begin our journey through the book of Luke, isn't it? The first thing is this, Luke is upfront about the fact that he believes in Jesus. That's a, that's a really important starting point, isn't it? You know what you're dealing with. One of the problems of those uh, scientific reports talking about mobile phones, which are kind of in the distance, hidden under layers of layers, in the small print, we work out that it's actually funded by... Uh, manufacture XYZ, so that as it goes out on the internet, I'm not sued by anybody, um, we realize that there's a hidden kind of influence. And Luke is up front. He's saying very clearly, Theophilus, I want you to be sure about this Jesus of Nazareth. So there's nothing surprising. He's up front about where he stands. The second interesting thing, and if you can, there's lots of things to keep hold of for the next months, but um, maybe worth thinking about it, downloading it, making a few notes, whatever it is. The next thing he said, I think, is important, is that his narrative, what he writes about, focuses on events and includes next to no interpretation. That's the way Luke approaches it. He describes what happens. He doesn't give an analysis of what to believe, how to interpret it. He just says, this is what happened. So his narrative focuses on events without his own interpretation. So even though up front he's saying, I believe in Jesus, the next step that he takes is, I'm just telling you what happens in the life of Jesus. What does that do for us? What does it do for the first readers? What does it do for us today? He says, I believe in Jesus. Then he says, here's the things that happens. What does that do? It results, thirdly, in us, in a sense independent of Luke, having to come to some conclusions. We need to look at this life. We need to consider this life, and in a sense, Luke is placing it in front of our eyes 
so that we are then faced with, well, what is my decision as a result of what I read about this Jesus of Nazareth? He puts the emphasis really on us to respond to what's going on. That's really helpful, I think. It's different to a report which is in a hidden way funded by an interested party that places a compelling sort of story and persuades of all the reasons why it's okay. Luke says, this is what happened. We're going to come back to that in a little minute. How does he approach it? Well, verse uh, 1 to 3 uh, give us, if you like, Luke's methodology. Many have undertaken to draw an, up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is saying, right, he's probably written around about AD 50-ish, somewhere between AD 40 and AD 64, something like that. That's the kind of timeline. What we see is that there is already in existence accounts of the life of Jesus. Certainly what is already in existence and is in circulation is the Gospel of Mark. Mark's first account, the one that was out earliest of the Gospels. And, and Luke probably has picked up this, and there are other writings that have been written about this Jesus. So he collects these. Luke is not an eyewitness of Jesus. He's somebody who's collecting these accounts, compiling, and then doing something really important. He's then analyzing. He's digging into the detail. He's looking at the events as they've been uh, written about. Is this really what happens? So he does the investigative work so that we might understand that he has really put the time in, in that period of time close to Jesus' life, to say, is this really what's gone on? That's the way he's approaching it. He's grabbing all of this information, and then he's, he's sifting it. I guess it's quite possible that there was some stuff, some crazy, wacky stuff that was written about Jesus that Luke has read about, and he's probably said, you know what, I've dug into that and that. I'm going to just dis discard that. Because that, that's just not, that's, that hasn't happened. But this I can be sure of. These are the things that happened. That's his approach. And we can see that he has a credibility to write in that way because we later find out a little bit about Luke. He's mentioned later on in the, in the Bible. He's mentioned in Colossians. He's mentioned in Philemon. And he's mentioned in the book of Timothy. Timothy 1, I think it is. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 14 says this. Paul writes about our dear friend Luke, the doctor. He was a doctor. Now, that, that's quite significant, actually, because what it says is that his methodology is consistent 
with what he is. He's the kind of person that acts like a doctor, probably a medical doctor, somebody who was very intellectually capable, somebody who was very able to analyze. It's great that we have people like that, isn't it? Because we, can, we can't just throw all of our trust into them, but we are able to look to them to help us to understand things which we don't, don't perhaps have access to, or they have a greater capability to gather information and think things through for us. And Luke's approach as a doctor is consistent in the way that he writes, which is great news. He's, he has a credibility as an author. But the other interesting thing is, and I want you to think about this, he traveled with the Apostle Paul. Luke's traveling around. What, what was Paul's job? He went from place to place to place, sharing the message about Jesus. Now, it's very, very likely that when they arrived in the various places that Paul was, that one of the things that was passed on was one of these written accounts that Luke had put together that says, this is the life of Jesus. So that those who are receiving the message from Paul have background information. Here's Luke, traveling with Paul, the writer of the gospel. Stands to reason, I would suggest, that the background information that Luke brought is precisely what is passed on to the various churches that are planted. Now, I want you to think about this because we are faced with this great challenge today, aren't we? Can I believe in the accounts of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago? That is, in a sense, that is no different to the challenge of can I believe in the accounts of Jesus that happened 25 years ago. In a sense, the fact that it has been tested and tried and questioned in all of those early years in many, many different ways gives a credibility to what is written. It, it makes it more secure for us, in a way, than those who first were reading it. This Jesus lived 25 years ago, did these amazing things. Not many people have heard about him. Can we trust it? Now, we're way down the line. We've got thousands of accounts of the life of Jesus that was written in those early years. It was tested in those early years. It was questioned in those early years. I would suggest it would have been impossible for Luke to write about these events as a, as a narrative, as a just these are the events that happened, and for them to survive as accounts if they didn't actually happen. Why? Because somebody would read it and say, do you know what? I was there 25 years ago. I was only 20. I'm 45 now. But I'm reading this, and this is rubbish. And as soon as that idea, this thought that this actually isn't what happened, started to gain momentum, the message of Jesus would have died out. 
just like many other false claims to messiahship as there were in those days. Did you know that there were many, of, many messiah claims around the time of Jesus? We don't know the names of hardly any. It's Jesus that we know about. Because in those early years, as it was tested, it was proved to have actually happened. So there's Luke's credibility. I know we've had to spend a bit of time on that. I know it kind of gets our brains stretched. But what I think is important is it creates, it creates a first foundation, doesn't it? For us to carry on the journey. So what do we grab out of Luke chapter 1? As Noel mentioned earlier, it's all about the message of the birth of Jesus. It's the chapter that we would normally go to at Christmas, because that's when we remember the birth of Jesus. We kind of go to Luke chapter 1, 2, we go to the early chapters of Matthew. We do the Christmas thing in December. And so I thought, rather than us doing a Christmas message, I want to look at what is significant What what can we draw out? And Luke chapter 1 is a chapter of two songs. It's the song of Mary, and it's the song of Zechariah. Mary, if we think about it in this way, Mary is the woman who shouldn't have had children because she wasn't married and she was a virgin. Elizabeth was the woman who couldn't have children because she was old. So there we've got a kind of contrast of two women. One who shouldn't and one who couldn't. And the outcome is that they both end up with children. Is this chapter all about children? No, absolutely not. And the reason that we're sure of that is because of what is sung about. So Mary, finding that she's going to have a child when she's a virgin, the shock, the confusion, the message from God through the angel Gabriel goes to her cousin Elizabeth. And as she meets with Elizabeth, there is a kind of moment, there's a God moment between these two women. And Mary breaks out into song, which we read. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. You see, for, for, for a Jewish woman at that stage in the history of God's salvation, the hope was that they might be the bearer of the salvation of God's people, that they might be the bearer of the promised Messiah, that they might be the bearer of the Christ. That was the hope. This is not about, will I have a baby? It's about, is it possible that I might bear the one who has been promised for the past thousands of years? The one who God's people have been promised in repeated ways through the prophets. And now Mary says, in this moment, God has delivered on His promise. 
And it's all about God delivering the promised Savior, the promised Messiah. And the reason and the outcome of my response to that is that I will worship that God. That is step one. That's what, in a sense, these two songs are conveying to us. If God is delivering a Savior, then the appropriate response is that I worship Him. I praise Him. I glorify His name. I think this is amazing news. And Mary declares that and she says, it's not just me, but there are going to be generations and generations and generations who are also going to rejoice. I don't know how you feel when we sing about the coming of Jesus at Christmas. You know, one of, the, one of the problems sometimes is that because we know our Christmas songs so well, we kind of just trot them off. But then every now and then, as we're singing them, I don't know whether this is for you as well, I, I've had these moments when suddenly something of the amazing message the incredible message, the incredible good news just bursts into my heart. And I think this, this is amazing, this news. One of the one, two lines that get me from Hark the Herald Angels, it says this, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Well, just think about that. The Godhead all that God is, is, is veiled, is kind of contained in human flesh. What's the response to that? Hail the incarnate deity, God with us. That's Mary's response. It's one of praise. It's one of worship. And yet at the same time, it's one of fulfillment. Mary is also praising because everything that has been promised has come true. God has been saying again and again, I'm going to deliver a Savior. I'm going to deliver a Messiah. It's going to come true. And then there's a few hundred years of silence from God. Silence. Malachi, the last of the voices of God into to God's people, and then silence, there's nothing. And then suddenly God breaks in again, and there is this, it's now. It's fulfilled. This is the moment. And Mary's song breaks out in just that way. Zechariah is a really interesting character. Zechariah is an older man, and in exactly the same way as Gabriel goes to speak to Mary, Gabriel also goes to Zechariah and says, your wife, in essence, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a child, going to have a baby. And he says to Gabriel, how can I be sure this is true? Does that ring any bells? If you've been around a while and if you've, maybe you're here for the series through uh, the life of Abraham, there's a moment where God speaks to Abraham 
and says, your wife is going to have a child. Sarah is old. And the pair of them, in a sense, they don't believe it. Sarah laughs. The reality is that God will fulfill His promises in the impossible situations at times. Why? So that we will know that it is God who is working. That's why it's a pause. That's why it's delivered to Elizabeth. At a time where it's impossible in human terms, God breaks in so that we will know that it is God who is at work. And Zechariah says to this messenger from God, can I know this is true? And, and the, uh, the angel says, well, because of that, Zechariah, you're going to be silent. You are going to be, not be able to speak until your child is born. That's it. He's dumb. He can't speak. Uh, and he's, he's, I don't know, maybe he's, he's signing for the, writing down messages. What do you want for, uh, what do you want for breakfast? Mm. Oh, eggs, okay, right, we'll do some eggs. You know, the, the whole of the months from there, it's just all about just getting through because he cannot speak. And then his son is born. John is born for Elizabeth. Some months before, Mary has Jesus. And straight away, Zechariah's his mouth works again, his voice works again, and he can speak. What's appropriate at that moment in time, in human terms? Joy and praise at the birth of his son is, in human terms, what's appropriate. It would be very strange uh, for the father of a child being born to, maybe he's not been able to be there at the birth, and he dashes into the maternity unit, and he runs over to a, a, a mother that is not his wife and sings praise over that baby instead of his. That would be really strange. It would be odd. But that is exactly what Zechariah does in metaphorical terms. The first words that he starts to sing about are about Jesus who hasn't yet been born. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that strange? Odd in human terms. Apart from the fact that the whole of this chapter, these two songs, are persuading us that this is not about a lovely Christmas story with births. It's about something way more significant. It's about Jesus. And Zechariah breaks out into song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He's come to His people and redeemed them. It's as though He's heard... Mary's song, and he's been itching for months to join in with the next few verses, singing about Jesus, his wife's cousin's child. In most cases, that would not win you brownie points. But in this case, it's absolutely appropriate, because the praise is not about the birth, the praise is about the event that they are living in. This moment where Zechariah is acknowledging this is the incredible 
turning point of world history. That's what it is. It is the turning point of world history. And therefore, it would be really strange if the birth of your own son seemed bigger than something as massive as that. Is his son forgotten? Well, no, his son isn't forgotten. He's sung about in verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him. That's what he sings about his own son. After singing about Jesus, after praising the birth, coming birth of Jesus, he then turns to his own son and he says, and you, my son, have a job to do. Why, why would Zechariah be so arrogant as to do? Why is that arrogant? It's arrogant because he's picking up from a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 where it says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's what Isaiah says. Isaiah says there's going to come a time when after silence there is going to be a breaking in of a prophet. And when that prophet comes, he is going to be the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. And he's going to be a voice of one in the desert. We were there a few months ago, a friend of mine and myself with a, with a group. Do you know what? It just jumped out at me how powerful that is. It is a desert where John was living. Outside of Jerusalem, desert place. And he's preparing the way for Jesus to break onto the world stage. It's barren, isolated. And yet at the same time, John had hundreds and hundreds of people traveling from Jerusalem and the various towns and villages to come and see him at the Jordan, to be baptized. And preparing the way for Jesus. And Zechariah says, that's my son. That is astoundingly arrogant unless Zechariah knows it's the truth. And that's what he sees. That's how he perceives this moment. This coming, this visitation of Gabriel... This silence that I've lived in over these months has given me the opportunity to think and to ponder. And he uses words to say, my son is the final prophet of Jesus. The final voice. After all of those other voices over hundreds and hundreds of years, my son is the final voice preparing for Jesus. That's, that's where we are. In a sense, with the birth of two babies, the stage is set. Preparing for the coming events. Preparing for the next chapters. The fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
the birth of a Savior. That's what these two songs represent. But I said earlier that that's not faith, just agreeing in the events of Jesus. Jeremiah says this, and it's related to one of the phrases in Zechariah's song. Jeremiah says this, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. That is amazing news, isn't it? That is exactly what Jesus does. He gives the opportunity for our relationship with God to be so that God no longer remembers our sins. I think we're really good, aren't we? We're really good at remembering our sins. If we believe in Jesus, that's one of the things that we're excellent at doing. We can remember our sins. They can be huge barriers to our relationship with God. Because we haven't cottoned on, we haven't embraced fully, we haven't really come to terms with what grace is, which says that the Lord no longer remembers our sins. They're passed to Him. And by faith in believing in that Jesus, not just living and accepting the events, but truly embracing and committing to Him, we can find the spirit of praise in the songs of Mary and the song of Zechariah. So there's our beginning. Kind of gives a a flavor, I think, of what we're going to have to do with these really long chapters of Luke. So I want to encourage you, read the chapters ahead of time. Maybe we can send a message out each week just to let you know where we're headed on the following Sunday. But my prayer is this, that rather than us just being compelled that these events took place, my prayer is that every one of us would be compelled that this is the Savior of the world who I am personally in relationship with so that the God of heaven no longer remembers my sins.